Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Carlos Maza, Steven Crowder, and Arbitrary YouTube Guidelines, a lawyer's view. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about a sensitive topic. That topic is speech and speech regulation. Not of governments, which is how we usually think of censorship. When we, when we talk about the First Amendment, we're talking about the fact that in the United States, the government isn't allowed to impose undue restrictions on the freedom of speech. Now, we're going to talk about tech companies, and in particular, Google, through its subsidiary, YouTube, and how it has chosen to enforce and not enforce its rules. Earlier in virtual legality, and you can check this video out, I did a video on what I called the tyranny of guidelines. And this was in respect of Sony imposing brand new kind of cultural guidelines on what it was going to permit in its PlayStation 4 ecosystem. And that video, which I will try to remember to, to put a card in for here and certainly a link in the description, is about how governments, sure, with their laws, but also companies in their terms and conditions can have and bestow upon themselves a great deal more power by being vague about what the rules are. And on a certain intuitive level, I think everybody understands that. If you've got a vague rule, and then you've got a party that's charged with enforcing that rule, like a corporation like YouTube in this case, then if that rule is vague enough, they have a great deal of discretion as to how they're going to enforce it. And that's what's happened today and in the last 24 or 48 hours. So let's talk about what has happened. And we're not going to talk about the specifics so much. Uh, because the specifics kind of get everybody impassioned and inflamed, and I think rightly so. But in my opinion, and certainly the way this was always taught to us in law school, it's very easy for bad facts to make bad law. It's very easy for passions and emotion to inflame the judgment and rationality of how we think about these things. And I think that's happened here to some extent on social media and the internet. And that's not disparaging anyone. I think that's perfectly normal when you're talking about things like bad language, like slurs, like racial epithets. And so let's talk about what happened here. We've got here a tweet from Carlos Maza, who is uh, named as Gay Wonk on Twitter. And my understanding, I'm not familiar with his work, my understanding is that he is an author or content contributor at Vox. And he says, so I have a pretty thick skin when it comes to online harassment, but something has been really bothering me. And then he goes on to label a number of things that have been said about him personally, about his sexual orientation, about his race, from a, I guess, conservative commentator on YouTube by the name of Steven Crowder. And he calls out to his fans, to his Twitter followers, and to others to tell YouTube about this so that they can at least you know, inspect, they can look upon the issue. And so they did that, and about 19 hours ago, by uh, the, the timing on this Twitter post, Team YouTube got back to them and it said, Thanks again for taking the time to share all of this information with us. We take allegations of harassment very seriously. We know this is important and impacts a lot of people. Our teams spent the last few days conducting an in-depth review of the videos flagged to us, 
And while we found language that was clearly hurtful, put a pin in that word, they use the word hurtful in their response to Carlos here. The videos as posted don't violate our policies. We've included more info below to explain this decision. As an open platform, it's crucial for us to allow everyone, from creators to journalists to late night TV hosts, to express their opinions within the scope of our policies. Opinions can be deeply offensive, but if they don't violate our policies, they'll remain on our site. Even if a video remains on our site, it doesn't mean we endorse or support that viewpoint. There are other aspects of the channel that we're still evaluating. We'll be in touch with any further updates. That's where it finished yesterday. Now, we're going to do our story. We're going to talk about this all in virtual legality, but just so that you have essentially the end of the story at the beginning, about 10 minutes ago, Team YouTube added a post on here that said, updated on our continued review, we have suspended this channel's monetization. We came to this decision because a pattern of egregious actions has harmed the broader community and is against our YouTube partner program policies. More here. And... I think at the end of the day, what you see here is you see Team YouTube making a decision to not do anything about this Steven Crowder fellow, to have the internet respond very negatively to Team YouTube's decision on this, and then to have them come back after the, essentially the trial balloon of what their initial response would be, came back wanting, making a change in their opinion. Because what they say here in this post basically is that he violated the partner program policies, which they essentially say that he didn't when they talk about his opinions being within the scope of their policies earlier in the thread. And that's not at all unusual for these companies, especially tech companies that tend to ride a little loosey-goosey with the way they enforce their rules and regulations. But let's not talk about the end state here, which is that they've decided to demonetize the channel, not deplatform him, but demonetize the channel, but talk about how they arrived at the decision they did, and what popped out of the legal language that they use in their own terms and conditions yesterday and last night that I flagged as interesting from a legal perspective and certainly saw it as a, a drafting issue. And that's this. This is the harassment and cyberbullying policy that YouTube puts out there. And this says, content or behavior intended to maliciously harass, threaten, or bully others is not allowed on YouTube. Now, I want to take a step back. Because when we look at these terms and conditions, they're in a help center. They don't use legal language. They don't use some of the structure that we usually see in a legal contract. And I think a lot of people get the wrong idea when they use the term legal ease to describe what it is that we do, especially the corporate transactional lawyers like myself. And I can understand it. A lot of what we tend to put together looks almost impossible to read for someone that's not used to reading contracts. But the nature of those things is not, not well thought out. It is, in fact, designed to be easy to understand if you can read those contracts and to be able to follow along with references and definitions that make clear the exact contours of what someone's obligations are, what their responsibilities are, and what the remedies are for someone that violates those obligations or responsibilities. Here, in the tech companies in particular, we have what is very normal. If you look at the Kickstarter terms and conditions, if you look at the Patreon terms and conditions, there's a general movement in the tech industry to try to make these things, quote unquote, simple English. But when they do that, they actually make things more ambiguous. And as I talked about with respect to the Sony guidelines, they give a lot more power to the company to decide who the winner and who the loser is going to be just based essentially on their own belief system and on their policies and values. Now, I'm a corporate lawyer. Corporations are allowed to do that. Make no mistake. That being said, 
people that use the service or that otherwise are aware of what a corporation is doing are also fully within their rights to complain about how they are using their powers under their terms and conditions, which is a little bit about what this is. So they say you can't maliciously harass. And then they say, if you're posting content that makes hurtful and negative personal comments about another person, that that's going to be a violation of this policy, or at least it's implied to read that way. They then say, if your content violates this policy, we'll remove the content. And if you remember from the language they use to describe Steven Crowder's videos, they actually go so far as to call it clearly hurtful. If you're a lawyer and you see that from YouTube, if you're, t if you're thinking about their tweets, the one thing you say to them is, okay, if you're going to make a decision not to pull something down, and this is the policy that we have in place, you don't use the word hurtful or negative personal comments. You just don't. And that's just legal advice. So that's not talking about the decision that YouTube made overall. But instead, they have a policy here that talks about hurtful personal comments. And they have a policy that says, we'll take it down if you make hurtful comments. They then call these comments hurtful. And then they say, hey, we're not going to take it down because it doesn't violate our policy. And you say to yourself, well, how did they get there? Because they certainly didn't describe how they got there in the actual tweets. And I looked at all of their policies. And here's what I think happened. So that harassment and cyberbullying policy is actually part of a deeper nested set of policies within the YouTube website. And that nested set is under this overall umbrella that I've now pulled up called policies and safety. And it says it's community guidelines in the domain name. And this is overall what you link to when you're making the decision to become a Google partner, which is what I did when we monetized the channel. And it says overall a number of things that you can't do. You can't have hateful content that has violence against individuals or whose primary purpose is to attack a protected group. And you see in respect of hateful comment, uh, hateful content, they include the term primary purpose twice. This is important to them. You can be an ancillary purpose to attack a protected group and maybe it's not a violation of the guidelines. But these are the overall rules that govern things. And then you do a deeper dive to essentially modify those rules. That's the best way to read this as a legal contract. So when we get to the harassment and cyberbullying section, we see the following language. It's not okay to post abusive videos and comments on YouTube. If harassment crosses the line into a malicious attack, it can be reported and may be removed. In other cases, users may be mildly annoying or petty and should be ignored. In other words, if we're thinking about this as a legal contract, and God knows if YouTube had decided to actually draft this as a legal contract, it would have been more useful to analyze in a legal way. If we're analyzing it as a contract, then what this basically says is we are looking to see if something crosses the line into a malicious attack. And if it does, then we will remove it. And then you can dive deeper into determining how we see things as malicious attacks. It's not at all clear with how those websites work together. And that's why it became such a Twitter storm or social media storm yesterday when people brought up the hurtful language and the way hurtful is described as something that will trigger a removal in their own harassment and cyberbullying guidelines. So YouTube sees this. YouTube says, okay, uh, we didn't do a good job explaining that. We are going to distract you with another shiny object here. And that's what they did today, as one could anticipate from the way this was described. So here's a New York Times article that says, YouTube to remove thousands of videos pushing extreme views. We're only going to read a little bit about this because, as you've probably heard in virtual legality, I think it's by, by far the better course of action to actually go to the primary material to evaluate it when we're discussing these things. But the New York Times is being used here in this video and podcast to show exactly how broad and how big this got. 
This was in the New York Times. This was in a number of other websites. And YouTube now is responding to the firestorm that they created last night. So this article starts out by saying, YouTube announced plans on Wednesday to remove thousands of videos and channels that advocate neo-Nazism, white supremacy, and other bigoted ideologies in an attempt to clean up extremism and hate speech on its popular service. The new policy will ban videos alleging that a group is superior in order to justify discrimination, segregation, or exclusion, the company said in a blog post. The prohibition will also cover videos denying that violent incidents like the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut took place. YouTube did not name any specific channels or videos that would be banned. Okay, that's the premise. That's what happened. That's what YouTube did today. But let's take a look at what they actually said, because how the New York Times described it is actually not as nuanced as it needs to be to actually evaluate what YouTube did. And in my opinion, what they did was far too broad to address the actual issues that have been presented to them so far. But that I don't think is a mistake. I think, in fact, that breadth here, just like the guidelines in the Sony case, are very important to YouTube because it allows them to make these case-by-case ad hoc determinations when and if something like last night happens where a firestorm occurs and they need to essentially roll back things and do something different like demonetize an entire channel when they had previously essentially said that they were okay and within policy. So let's take a look at what they announced today. Over the past few years, we've been investing in the policies, resources, and products needed to live up to our responsibility and protect the YouTube community from harmful content. This work has focused on four pillars. Let's keep these in mind. Removing violative content. So that's removing content that absolutely violates their policies. That's easy. They remove that if it violates. Raising up authoritative content. And we're going to talk about that because I think that's the crux of the issue uh, from the users of YouTube, from the content creators of YouTube. It's certainly something that raised my eyebrows when I saw that. Reducing the spread of borderline content and rewarding trusted creators. Thanks to these investments, videos that violate our policies are removed faster than ever, and users are seeing less borderline content and harmful misinformation. Now, it's important to note how that sentence is structured. We're going to get to this a little bit in more detail. But note that they separate borderline content from content that contains harmful misinformation. And as a matter of fact, they never actually define borderline content other than to say it rubs up against a policy violation. And to me, that's one of the bigger problems in this set of rules, in these guidelines, if you will. And we're gonna talk about that when we get to that pillar because this blog post is divided into those pillars. Then they say in 2018 alone, we made more than 30 policy updates. One of the most complex and constantly evolving areas we deal with is hate speech. Now, again, I want to take a step back here because I think it's good that they're making policy changes to address the issues that they're having on their system. Where I think it's bad is if you're a user of this, whether you're watching videos or making them, it's not a great thing for the law of the land, the law of the service that you're using or that you're providing content for to change policies 30 times within a calendar year. That's very hard for someone to deal with. That's very hard for someone to adapt to. And in general, more mature industries, companies and industries that are better situated and framed out as to what it is that they are going to be in the universe, don't have these many changes. You do an evaluation, you make one broad change. This is a little bit like playing a video game, if you will, and having a patch come out every day. And how annoying that is just from a download perspective, but how much more annoying it is if it's a competitive game and the strength of your weapons are changing every single day. And it's very difficult to even know what the strategies should be to succeed in that game. 
So while I think it is to be commended that they are trying to address these issues, it is not the best way to do it for everybody involved. The people that are aggrieved, that are getting attacked, the people that are potentially doing the attacking, and most specifically, the people that don't do attacks or that have things that are quote unquote borderline or that YouTube, without giving any additional definition, sets out as being uh, rubbing up against the violations of their policies. So that's kind of the overview of what's happened here. Let's talk about the actual pillars that they mentioned. So they've got removing hateful and supremacist content from YouTube. In 2017, we introduced a tougher stance towards videos with supremacist content, including limiting recommendations and features like comments and the ability to share the video. This step dramatically reduced views to these videos, on average 80%. Today, we're taking another step in our hate speech policy by specifically prohibiting videos alleging that a group is superior in order to justify discrimination, segregation, or exclusion based on qualities like age, gender, race, caste, religion, sexual orientation, or veteran status. The New York Times described this new rule as essentially banning Nazis. And in fact, YouTube puts in their next sentence, this would include, for example, videos that promote or glorify Nazi ideology, which is in inherently discriminatory. That's all well and good. That's the easy case. Absolutely. Get rid of the Nazis. YouTube is totally within its rights to get rid of the Nazis. I think that's a great thing. But what they did actually in adopting this broad-based rule to say that you can never say a group is superior to justify discrimination, which is a bad word. It's a dirty word, certainly in the law, but as a defined term, it just means to discriminate, to tell differences between groups. And you can't do it based on age. You can't say that young people are better than old people at anything. Old people know more than young people. You can't really talk about things like the wisdom of the, uh, the older folks or anything like that. And you can't make, it would seem, if you were to take this to its logical conclusion, you can't make joke videos about the way different genders write their names in cursive or drive cars or anything else like that. And so I think that's fine. However, when you talk about this breadth, I don't think YouTube is going to use it for 99% of cases. When I bring up those hypotheticals, I don't think that's what YouTube intended to hit. I don't think that's what they're going to use it on for most, for most cases. However, it allows them to do so if they deign it to be a good idea. And so you get once more into that area of guidelines. You get once more into that area of maybe you trip up YouTube in some other way. Maybe you embarrass them on the national media landscape like Steven Crowder appears to have done. And then they can use this as another weapon in their quiver to take you down. And I think that's what, if you're looking at this and you think, hey, you know, virtual legality doesn't really offend anybody. It doesn't call out anybody. We try not to have personal attacks on anyone because I don't think that's useful for reasonable discourse. But how could this be used against you? And you say, okay, well, it's possible that at some point in one of the videos, we've talked about the different abilities of uh, maybe the older group that is at the head of certain corporations to understand the tech scene and to understand the contract terms, uh, as well as maybe some of the people that are coming up and that came up with computers and things of that nature. And certainly, I don't think YouTube is, has any interest in coming after uh, little old virtual legality or the Hoglaw YouTube channel. Uh, but it's possible that they could. And when you see these kinds of broad rules, that's where I start to say, okay, just put a note on your dashboard that that's YouTube taking a little bit more power to determine what it wants on its service in a way that they don't really have to explain until they actually drop the hammer. That gets a little bit worse when we talk about reducing borderline content 
and raising up authoritative voices. So these are the second two out of the four pillars. They say in January, we piloted an update of our systems in the US to limit recommendations of borderline content and harmful misinformation. So I thought, hey, that's interesting. And they actually linked to this blog post that they made in January that says continuing our work to improve recommendations on YouTube. That sounds like a good thing. Nobody likes bad recommendations and everybody's sick of getting all the hateful and outrage recommendations or 600 different ways that Ray ruined The Last Jedi. And that may or may not have something to do with the videos that I'm watching. Uh, but either way, the recommendations can tend to be uh, overly the same. They can tend to be not what you want to see. And so if YouTube's trying to improve them, that's a great thing. But here's what they actually said about what they did. They said, we will continue the work to improve recommendations, including a taking a closer look at how we can reduce the spread of content that comes close to, but doesn't quite cross the line of violating our community guidelines. To that end, we'll begin reducing recommendations of borderline content and content that could misinform users in harmful ways. Again, note that separation. They're not saying that borderline content is content that could misinform. All they're saying is that it potentially gets close to violating our community guidelines. And if you think about this as a map, if you're thinking about why this is problematic to a lawyer like me, the reason is it's creating an entire kind of gray space around the edges of the policies that they've actually put forth. They've put forth already ambiguous rules, and then they are saying, okay, even if you don't violate these ambiguous rules, we can't come up with a reason to say that you violated it. If you get close enough, essentially, if we had to investigate you, I think there's a reason to believe that that's close enough to being borderline. Then, okay, if somebody called out your video, we don't find it to be a violation, but the fact that someone called it out will be deemed borderline. And then we can drop you from recommendations. We can drop you from the algorithm. We can drop you from all of these different ways that YouTube uses to get good videos out there. Then we've got a real problem because we've already got ambiguous rules. And now they're doubly ambiguous because anything that gets close to even the ambiguous line can be knocked down by YouTube. And presumably we don't see any transparency here. We see YouTube saying, hey, if you're borderline, we're just going to make sure you're not recommended. And chances are there's really no reason that they would have to tell you about the fact that you have been deemed borderline. And so this is another area where YouTube is essentially taking full authority over what it wants to do with its algorithm and how it's treating its client base, being the people that are creating the content and saying, ah, we'll figure it out and we don't need to tell you anything. At the same time, they then say, as we do this, we'll also start raising up more authoritative content in recommendations, building on the changes we made to news last year. I look at that and initially you say, hey, I'm a lawyer talking about legal things. I'm a business lawyer talking about business and law things. Maybe I'm an authoritative uh, source for these types of things, but I don't think that's what YouTube means. They go on to say, for example, if a user is watching a video that comes close to violating our policies, our systems may include more videos from authoritative sources like top news channels in the Watch Next panel. And that brings us back to really one of the reasons why Team YouTube made the initial uh, decision that they made on Steven Crowder in my opinion. And we can see that in the tweets that they made. Going back to that Twitter thread that they had in response to Carlos Maza, they said, as an open platform, it's crucial for us to allow everyone from creators to journalists, and here's the rub, to late night TV hosts to express their opinions within the scope of our policies. I believe that YouTube sat back, looked at this and said, hey, We've got Stephen Colbert calling Trump names. We've got various other late night hosts calling out all sorts of politicians and thought leaders in the United States and beyond. And if we aren't careful with how we impose these rules, other people could call us out and say, why aren't you attacking X, Y, or Z? Now, at the end of the day, I have to tell you, 
I think even if that were the case, YouTube could continue to do whatever it wants and they would be fine. Except I think it's important from a kind of background knowledge as to how YouTube and Google are deciding what decisions to make right now to note, as we see here in this Verge article, which I will link in the description, but we're not going to read the substance of, that Google is facing an imminent antitrust investigation from the U.S. Justice Department. As a matter of fact, all sorts of bodies, the FTC, the DOJ, the House of Representatives, all of them basically announced that they were going to launch into investigations of the way the tech giants, Apple, Amazon, Google, are operating in the current modern ecosystem. You would be remiss to not take into account the political background of what Google and YouTube are facing when they're evaluating the decisions that they're making. Because as I said, they have this total authority to make these decisions and presumably they could make them without much blowback because whatever people said about them, it wouldn't matter. People would still use YouTube. But now they've got a government investigation. They've got people that are looking over their shoulder about the decisions they're making. And when you have that happen, the corporation, the board of directors, the officers have to try to be not so arbitrary and capricious or to at least not look that way to an outside observer. So if they make a decision about Steven Crowder and they can't back it up with a nice set of documents that separate how he speaks with how Stephen Colbert speaks, then they might be in trouble if they don't take a similar action. And so I think that's what happened here. And I think as well as the firestorm that happened on the internet over the last 24 hours or so, they probably were also getting their ducks in a row. They were getting documentation in a file that they could use to show how different this channel was that they were about to demonetize than CBS and whatever else is out there putting up late night clips, putting up other things that are perhaps more mainstream, but use potentially similar language or that people that uh, don't like those sources could come after because YouTube makes money off of those. YouTube monetizes those sells ads with respect to those clips and they don't want to shoot the golden goose if they can avoid it. Finally, for the last pillar, they talk about continuing to reward trusted creators and enforcing our monetization policies. Uh, You saw earlier this year, they increased their monetization thresholds to require, I believe it was 4,000 hours viewed and 1,000 subscribers, which was much, much higher than their previous thresholds, which only required 10,000 views over the lifetime of the channel. And I think it was even lower before that. And that's all well and good. They're trying to say, hey, we're trying to limit who can monetize this to people that are actually putting out content. Thankfully, that's virtual legality in the Hoglaw YouTube channel. But note the language that they also use in here, that channels that repeatedly brush up against our hate speech policies will be suspended from the YouTube partner program. And here's again my problem with this. Who's determining what brush up against means? And if brushing up against something means suspension, then really, in all honesty, you've set the rule line in the wrong place. Hit the line that you mean. Tell people what they can and can't do. And if they violate it, then take that action. That's clear. That's concise. That's a good rule of law. And I use that term, which we usually use in respect of legislatures and governments, just to kind of give the feeling for when people talk about corporations in terms and conditions, what it is that they're actually talking about here. We're not talking about First Amendment violations. We're not really talking about censorship, and we're not talking about legal violations. We're not talking about suing YouTube. We're talking about whether or not they are enforcing their terms and conditions in a way that people can understand, that aren't arbitrary and capricious, and that won't be different tomorrow than they were today. And I think people that come up and look at this policy 
and comment on what's happened in the last 24 and 48 hours, regardless of how repugnant you think Steven Crowder is. And I don't like anything that he said in that video, and I'm not going to link it in this description. You can find it for yourself if you're interested, but it's all repugnant and it's all terrible, and I wouldn't listen to him uh, if you paid me money. But that doesn't change the fact that YouTube basically decided one way yesterday, decided a different way today, and announced a policy that essentially reserves for themselves the right to decide however they want, regardless of whether you violated a policy, because they can determine that you brushed up against the policy and they can take your monetization away. And fortunately, I'm a lawyer by day. YouTube channeling is not my livelihood. So this doesn't impact me as much as it impacts some other folks. But for those folks who have determined to make YouTube their business model, this stuff has to be enormously frightening. We are talking about rules that people can't understand, including lawyers. We're talking about ambiguities that can't be interpreted until YouTube has decided how it will deign to interpret them. And then we're saying, even in that case, YouTube can decide that you got close enough to violating the thing that they can penalize you anyway. And in all honesty, if I were representing a client who was going to enter into a contract with terms like this, I would tell them there are 15 red flags and they should run and not walk away. So for someone like me, whose livelihood doesn't depend on YouTube, I think, okay, that's fine. But for other people whose livelihood does depend on the service, who does, does depend on monetization through this outlet, I would look at these policies and I would say, uh-oh, YouTube doesn't know what they're doing, doesn't know the direction they want to go. And to the extent they do know what they're doing, it's all to reserve power for themselves and everybody else be damned. And that's been Virtual Legality for today. I hope you enjoyed it. It's a little bit of a different kind of topic for us to cover. Uh, but I do videos like this all the time. I recently did a video on whether indie games are, are stagnant, which was in respect of an interview that Jonathan Blow gave. I've got intellectual property videos about Iron Maiden and Ion Maiden. I've got talks about E3 coming up and whether or not the hosts of various other influencer programs should be hosting E3. If you liked any of this, like, subscribe to this channel. We cover this kind of stuff all the time. Otherwise, if you listen to this on a podcast, please do review this on the podcast service you're listening to it on. I would really appreciate it. That helps us get the name and the channel out there. Otherwise, if you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. I will catch you on the very next Virtual Legality.